We're going to pray before we come to look at this part of God's word. I invite you to pray with me. Lord God, as we hear these words of the Lord Jesus, Lord, we pray that you might teach and rebuke us, correct and encourage us. We pray that you would enable my words that I speak this morning to be your words, and that your spirit would plant them in our hearts and minds, that we might respond to what you say rightly, appropriately, respond in repentance and faith, and living for our Lord Jesus. Amen. You've got an outline in the notice sheet, so feel free to follow along with that. Who are the blessed people? When you think of who's blessed, what comes to mind? Is it the person who's got a big house, a nice car, a BMW in the driveway? Maybe we think of good health, good relationships, a loving family, lots of friends. Maybe we think success, success in sport, success at school, in the workplace, maybe in retirement. And maybe you think of that person who can take life easy, go on long holidays, live however they want, do whatever they want. But counter-culturally, counter Intuitively, as we heard so helpfully in the kids' talk already, Jesus turns things on their head, maybe our expectations on their head. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says something completely different from what people expect and what he says can shake us up. And I hope this morning we'll leave being clear on who the blessed ones are and what it means to be blessed. Matthew chapters 5 to 7 is the summary of one long sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's come to be called that. It's likely the greatest sermon ever preached. It begins with these blessings. It ends with two ways to live. And it's uh, amazing. It's wonderful. It's deeply challenging. And it is one of the most famous Christian teaching passages But I hope its familiarity won't lead you to switch off because you think you know it all. Rather, I hope that you will see the relevance of this for your life. We're going to be covering chapters 5 to 7 over the next 10 weeks, but let's understand the backgrounds. This passage, it's uh, in this book, it's written by Matthew, uh, one of the 12 apostles. It was written to help others, especially Jews, come into relationship with Jesus. And if you were to skip back to chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that this is, Matthew says, it's the record of Jesus Christ. Do you remember that means Jesus the Messiah? Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, means he's the promised king and deliverer. And when we're coming up to in chapter 4, chapter 5, it's early in Jesus' public ministry. He's in Galilee. He's been preaching that people should repent and turn back to God because the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, he's arrived. So come to God through him. Come follow him. And in chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus calls his first disciples to follow him. And then at the end of chapter 4, Jesus has been preaching the good news. He's been healing disease and sickness and large crowds from all over have come to follow him. And when we come to chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus moves away from the crowds up this mountain 
And he speaks to his disciples who come to him. But if you look at the end of chapter 7, you'll see the crowds are still there. So they're followed along too and are listening in. In terms of our approach to understanding the Sermon on the Mount, it's important for us to see that Jesus is mirroring what happened on Mount Sinai many thousands of years ago. As we read earlier in Exodus 19, Moses went up a mountain and Moses then taught, he came and he taught God's people. And Jesus now has gone up a mountain and he's teaching God's people. Moses declared that God had saved them from slavery. He bought them on eagles' wings and carried them to himself, brought them to himself. And then Moses has given them the law and told them how to live to please God. And so as people whom God has saved already, the Israelites were to live holy lives. God said as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Moses, now in the law, in Exodus and following, he's teaching them what holy living looks like. And now we have Jesus teaching his followers about holy living. Jesus, in this sermon, is describing what life looks like for Jesus' followers. It's a proclamation of kingdom living. It's a description of what it means to live as a Christian, how Christ's people are to live. He's also describing how the inward transformation leads to outward transformation, outward change. When God changes us inwardly, he changes the way we live and speak on the outside. Jesus' sermon, it begins with these eight beatitudes. That just means eight blesseds. And they can all sound like entrance requirements to the kingdom. You know, what you have to do to acquire your citizenship. And in that case, people think that they, can, they become a, a reward for good works. And I think maybe we can tend to hear it this way. And that's because... We always want to turn the grace of God the King into works. And so you hear some people say, people have said to me, Clinton, I follow, I obey the Sermon on the Mount. I'm a good person. I've never harmed anyone. But as Martin Luther 500 years ago said, we are not properly able to fulfill one tittle of this out of our own strength but must always crawl to Christ. And so we must have the right understanding and the, go about and have the right approach to the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon is not intending to show us a law which if we fulfil it, we will then be brought into the kingdom of God as a reward, for we can't for one moment live up to this. We must crawl to Christ in faith. The sermon is to show us that while we are unable to live like this, in the grace of God in the gospel, God makes provision for us to enjoy it all, all these blessings. My wife Kirsty and I were blessed by being able to attend a conference in the United States in April this year. It was called Together for the Gospel, T4G, Seeing praise to God with 12,000 others in a packed stadium was wonderful. We were built up by the preaching of John Piper, John MacArthur, Mark Dever, even the Prezi, Ligon Duncan. Matt Chandler spoke on the Sermon on the Mounts there, and he said this. 
speaking of the Sermon on the Mount. These instructions cannot be accomplished with white-knuckled discipline. We cannot, with enough effort, become a peacemaker or mourn or meek. We don't gain our salvation by obeying the Beatitudes or the Ten Commandments. The Beatitudes give us a picture of the ideal person, someone who's submitted fully to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So their compulsions have been brought to Christ and the Spirit has broken them and then built them up. And those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ display these qualities. And these qualities must be cultivated by the process of sanctification so we can, by the Spirit, grow to fruitfulness, obeying God's word. To put it another way, if you've been given the kingdom, you will obey the king. Having been given the kingdom already, we as disciples, followers of Jesus, are here told how to obey the king. And so kids, I hope you're listening too. Kids, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, okay, this passage, please don't think it's a lot of instructions that you need to do, 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 do this to become friends with God. We don't do, do, do to get into God's kingdom. Instead, because it's already been done by God, we do. Because Jesus has already done it and saved us, we obey God. Got to get the order right. In verses 1 to 12, Jesus is describing the kind of people who are members of God's kingdom. It's the marks of membership. It's describing the character of a Christian. And the whole package is intended to describe a Christian. And so we can't say, well, I'm, I'm a meek person, but I'll never be merciful. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount, it's, meant to, it's describing for us what life for the Christian looks like. And even though we're not fully transformed yet, it shows us what a Christian's heart is to look like. And the first four Beatitudes describe how these blessed people relate to God. And so coming to verse 3, who are the blessed ones? Who's blessed? First one in verse 3 is the unworthy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In Jesus' similar sermon on the plain in Luke chapter 6, he says, blessed are the poor. Anyone who's been genuinely poor knows that it is a crushing and humiliating experience. I've not known that. But if you are truly poor, then you don't feel blessed. The poor man in the Old Testament was one who was both afflicted and is unable to save himself, change his situation. So he looks to God for salvation. And that poverty that Jesus is referring to here in Matthew chapter 5 is not economic poverty. It's spiritual poverty, poverty in spirit. That means as far as having anything to offer to God... We're bankrupt. Being poor in spirit is acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy. And I think reading the Sermon on the Mount only reminds us of this. If you go home and read Matthew 5 to 7 this afternoon, I think you'll realise that we just don't have the resources to obey this. Poor in spirit is knowing that you can't obey well enough. We have nothing to bring to the table on Judgment Day. But nothing in our favour. Nothing that means that we're deserving of blessing. So the king's people 
are those who know that they are unworthy before God. And becoming a Christian starts with this, knowing that we're unworthy. Because only those who cry out for mercy will be saved. Reminds me of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. It's the person who says, God have mercy on me, a sinner, who goes home justified, accepted, right with God. I'm really thankful that my mum started taking my brothers and I to church when I was about seven. And I'm thankful for my Sunday school teachers. I never remember a time when I wasn't a Christian. As long as I can remember, I've loved and trusted Jesus. But through my high school years, I became quite a self-righteous person. I looked down on others. I thought I was better than others. And in my mind, I condemned others as not being good enough. All the while being blind to my own pride, my own sin. When I got to uni and joined the Christian Union, it was then that I came to really understand grace. I was gripped by the realisation of my own deep sin and unworthiness. And I realised that my supposed good works couldn't add to what Jesus had already done. I couldn't save myself. I couldn't be good enough. It wasn't Jesus plus my good works. It wasn't salvation by Jesus plus my good works. It was all about trusting in what he had done and not what I do. I realised that Jesus lived perfectly obediently in my place. He died to take the punishment for my pride, my sin, my selfishness. And he rose again so that you and I can find forgiveness peace with God, a place in heaven. And that's good news that we should, and I hope can, praise God for. In verse 3, Jesus says, if you want to be members of my kingdom, you must admit that you come with nothing. As we'll sing shortly, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And they are the blessed ones. The word blessed, some translate translated as happy, and, but here it doesn't mean happy. That emotion that just can come and go depending on our outward circumstances. Those who are blessed will often be profoundly happy, deeply happy, but blessedness can't be reduced to happiness. Blessed describes ultimate well-being or favourable circumstances, but here it's especially describing someone who's favoured by God. Jesus is not talking about here. He's not talking about how we feel, but it's a, an objective statement about what God thinks of them. It's describing someone who has received God's smile, God's acceptance. Like when Psalm 2 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in God's Son. Just like in Psalm 2, blessed describes the experience of those who've been saved, those who've experienced being saved by God. And these blessed people, they are basking in God's approval because they have God's acceptance now and they are anticipating a, a happier future, a happier destination. Next is guilty. Uh, really, I'm talking about feeling guilty. Blessed are those who mourn 
that they will be comforted. It's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It's another thing to grieve and mourn over it. If verse 3 was more intellectual, verse 4 is more emotional. And here we mourn over the cause of our unworthiness. It's knowing we're guilty. It's confessing from our hearts that we're guilty. And it's grieving it, as we heard in the kids' talk. It's about being sad. It's not talking about the sorrow of bereavement, but the sorrow of repentance. I wonder, have you ever felt sad for your sin? I think the Apostle Paul expresses some of this in Romans chapter 7. He says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And he goes on to say, further down in verse 23, 24, there's a law of sin, a rule of sin is at work within my members, within my body. And what's his conclusion? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He gives us the answer. But entry into Jesus' kingdom comes, it starts really with grieving that we're so unlike the king. And if you've never sorrowed over the sin in your life, not just the consequences, but actually being sad about the sin itself and the way your sin has wronged God, then please ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Here, Christ is fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah 61. That's for if you've got good eyes. Really, these can be Jesus' words. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, further down to comfort those who mourn, to comfort all who mourn, and to give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. These messianic blessings, they've come to us because the king and rescuer Jesus has come and forgiven his people's sins because he's saved his people from their sins. And so when we know we're unworthy, when we know we're guilty and we feel it, we, we look to Jesus in faith. And those who mourn for their sin, relying upon Jesus, are the very ones God comforts. It gives assurance to, assurance of forgiveness. We'll come back to that shortly. Third beatitude is to the lowly, blessed are the meek. I think it seems more true to say in our world, blessed are the champions, blessed are the powerful, the proud and powerful, they'll inherit the earth. I mean, kids, when the teachers aren't there looking in the playground, who is it that wins in the end? Is it the kids who are the champions, the toughest, the strongest, or maybe even the ones who look down on others and can push others around? Well, Jesus says, no, they're not going to win in the end, not in the very end. And so we have here from Jesus another unexpected assertion, him saying things that don't match up with what we see in life now in our world. We have another paradox In our world that prizes power and prestige and status, whether it's in the playgrounds or politics, in your workplace or online, this meekness is hard to find. And yet when we know we're unworthy and guilty, we will be meek. The first two lead to the third one. 
A meek describes the humble, the lowly. And kids and adults, please understand, meekness is not weakness. And it's not shyness. It's having a humble and gentle attitude. It's having a true estimate, a true understanding of yourself before your great and holy God. One person puts it it like this. I can pray a corporate prayer of confession of sin in church, like praying up here, and it causes me no great problem. I can take it in my stride, but let someone else come up to me after church and call me a sinner, and I want to punch them in the nose. I'm not prepared to allow other people to think or speak of me what I have just acknowledged that I am. This hypocrisy, its presence when meekness or humility is absent. I think we can often go around comparing ourselves with others and thinking that we're not that bad, especially compared to Sansa. But God's a God of grace. He gives his kingdom only to the spiritually bankrupt, to those who humble themselves before him, those who humble themselves and depend on his grace. So bind yourself to Jesus in faith because he was the incarnation of meekness and from him we will learn gentleness, meekness, humility. Next is hungry. Hunger and thirst, they're powerful drives. Children, I remember when I was a kid, I thought I knew what hunger was when my mum didn't have afternoon tea ready for me when I got home. I thought that was hunger. Then I did the 40-hour famine and thought, oof, this is hungry. I'm hungry. But I think if we haven't known real dehydration and starvation, and I haven't, then we don't know how powerful hunger and thirst can be. I mean, I can just open the fridge, buy a drink, turn on the tap. But verse 5 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This speaks firstly, have a number one on your outline, that speaks firstly of hungering for the righteousness God gives. When you read this, we might automatically think that Jesus is speaking about our quest for personal holiness. And yet a hunger for righteousness is not simply, and it's not firstly, a passion for right living or godliness. In the context here, it's a passionate desire for a right relationship with God. It's a real desire for a right relationship with God. And Jesus finally satisfies that hunger as he dies to pay the penalty for our sin to make us right with God. But when we have this right relationship with God, we will then also, secondly, hunger to live right lives, lives that please God. In other words, the credited righteousness that we have by faith in Christ, it will lead to sanctification, to us progressively, more and more, living right lives that please God. And that will affect the the words that we speak. It will affect the the way we work, the way we treat people, even the things we desire. All of that's included here. And we'll think more about what that looks like next week. But please know that righteous living, it's not just about avoiding badness, bad things. 
John Piper says it well when he writes, Oh, how many lives are wasted by people who believe the Christian life means simply avoiding badness and providing for the family. So there's no adultery, no stealing, no fraud, no killing, just lots of hard work during the day and lots of TV or screen time in the evening and lots of fun stuff on the weekend, weekend woven around church even. Piper says this is a wasted life. We were created for more, so much more. Let us treat Jesus as an all-satisfying, all-authoritative Lord in the cause of love. I wonder as you reflect on these verses, what needs to change for you? Have you honestly put your confidence in yourself? and fail to acknowledge your unworthiness before God? Are you actually a churchgoer without Christ? Have you mourned over your sin? Or just treated it lightly and forgiveness is cheap? Do you have too high an opinion of yourself? Or or maybe you... Like me when I was a teenager, guilty of looking down on others, thinking I was good, I was godly, better than them. I had to repent of my pride and my lack of humility. Sometimes I still do. Have you hungered for the right relationship with God that Christ gives? And if you've found that, Are you hungering to live for the king who has saved you? It's only these unworthy, guilty, lowly, hungry ones who've trusted in Jesus who will be blessed. But in what way are Christ's people blessed? How are they blessed? That's the next point. Verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's Matthew's way of talking about the kingdom of God. And it's yours if you are a Christian. Knowing that you are unworthy, if you've come to Christ in faith and he's brought you under his rule into relationship with himself, and you are blessed. Entering God's kingdom, having a place in heaven, it is a a present reality and a future blessing. And similar to this, he says we'll inherit the earth. That's the new heaven and the new earth that we will experience and enter at the return of Jesus, at the new creation. At the Old Testament promised land, it flowed with milk and honey, but this only foreshadowed what was to come, what we are still yet to experience. It finds fulfilment in, it climaxes in this new creation, this new heaven and earth that Revelation 21 speaks about. So we who know King Jesus as Lord and Saviour, we will be welcomed into that kingdom, that new creation when Jesus returns. We'll have a place in heaven forever. Forever. And those who enjoy King Jesus' reign and his salvation, they're the ones who are, in verse 4, comforted. And we get a measure of real comfort now knowing that our sins are forgiven and we have peace with God and that meal is to assure us of that. 
But our comfort in this life is limited. In the life to come, it will be immeasurable. And it's the same with the being filled in verse 6. As we hungered for the righteousness that God gives, we will be filled. Didn't Jesus say, I am the bread of life? Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever, Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And there's a now and a not yet element to this. We experience some now, but it's not all yet. In glory, Christ's people will be completely, fully blessed and fulfilled and satisfied. And so I wonder whether you're seven years old or you're 17 or you're 77, are you looking forward to heaven? When Jesus will fill our desire for happiness, no more waiting, no more wanting. So please see that God doesn't promise present blessings, long holidays, happy families, health and wealth. But he does promise a place in his kingdom, comfort and fulfilment now, and he promises perfect comfort, no more tears, and incomparable fulfilment in the life to come. We are blessed. Are you blessed? I close with this. I wonder if you've seen the 2006 movie Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith. Tells the true story of Chris Gardner, a San Francisco salesman struggling to build a future for himself and his five-year-old son, Christopher. The dad, Chris, lands an unpaid in, unpaid internship at a brutally competitive stockbroker training program. But they're forced to sleep on the streets, in homeless shelters, and even in a train station bathroom. And yet with self-confidence and the love and trust of his son, Chris Gardner rises above his obstacles to become a Wall Street legend. Did he find true happiness? At the end of the movie, he was happy, but he wasn't blessed. For we cannot find lasting happiness or blessedness by our own efforts. For the blessed person has not placed their confidence in themselves, but in God. In their unworthiness, they've turned to the King Jesus and they now live for him. And it's they who get to experience God's blessings now in part, heaven in heaven in, in full. The question is, will you be experiencing those blessings? Let's pray. Father God, we confess this morning that we are sinners. We are unworthy. And when we know our unworthiness, when we feel our guilt and are sad about it, we pray that we would, in our hearts, run to Jesus in faith. Trust him. Rely on him. Thank you that he's the one who can give us a a right relationship with God. And Lord, we pray that if we have a relationship with King Jesus, that you might give us more and more a desire to live to please him in response. Help us to be thankful for all the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Amen.